Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we are thrilled today to welcome the great Don Lemon to SALT Talks. I know Anthony has been on Don's show many times, and uh, we're, we're big fans of, of your show there on CNN, uh, Mr. Lemon. But Don Lemon anchors CNN Tonight with Don Lemon, airing weeknights at 10 p.m. He also serves as a correspondent across CNN U.S. programming. Uh, he's based out of the network's New York Bureau. Uh, he joined CNN in September of 2006. He's a news veteran of Chicago, however, and he reported from Chicago in the days leading up to the 2008 presidential election, in which we saw President Obama, a Chicago native, be elected the first African-American president, including an interview with then-Representative Rahm Emanuel on the day that he accepted the position of chief of staff for president-elect Barack Obama. He also interviewed Ann Cooper, the 106-year-old voter that President Obama highlighted in his election night acceptance speech after he had seen uh, Don's interview with Cooper on CNN. Uh, Don also served as the moderator for CNN's political town halls and co-moderated the first 2020 Democratic presidential debate and co-hosted Color of COVID, a special that addressed the pandemic's impact on communities of color. Don is also out with a great book that Anthony will talk about uh, in the opening here called This is the Fire, talking about race relations in the United States, which is a must read uh, in this era and any era, frankly. But hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, who I was alluding to, who's a founder and managing partner of Skybridge. I know Anthony has been on the show with Don many times. Anthony's also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony to begin the interview. So, so, so Don, what Darcy wanted to say, but I had to take it out of the script, that he loves your show, except when I'm on it. Okay, but I had to, I had to mark that out of the script. I'm just giving you a sense for the type of people we're dealing with on Salt Talks. Did you hear that? He called me Mr. Lemon. Yeah, I, so I heard that. Yeah. You from that. Yeah. I mean, I, I may have to start calling you that. I could, you know, at some day it could be Sir Lemon. You never know, Don, the way your <laughs> career's going. I have no idea, but let, we could start out with Sir. But I'm holding up the book for a reason. First of all, the cover's fantastic. This is The Fire. What I say to my friends about racism. And obviously, Don Anchor CNN tonight. Uh, great cover. Why did you title it this? I want you to go into the reasons why you, yeah. you mentioned them in the book. But why do you title it this? And uh, you write about your nieces and nephews about the fight to end racism. Give us some sense for how this book came together and why you titled it that. Well, this book is a tribute um, to James Baldwin, and it was fashioned in um, in a sense to. Uh, to James Baldwin's book, The Fire Next Time, which was my favorite book and one of the first uh, books, well, not one of the first books, but the book that really changed my life. And you can see this is my original copy from, one of the original copies. So we, we get a lot of young people that listen into Salt Talks. Obviously I want them to read that book as well as this one. So for yeah. those young people that are not as familiar with James Baldwin mm -hmm. as you and I are, uh, tell us who James Baldwin was and why he had such a big impact on Don Lemon. James Baldwin. Sir Don Lemon, Sir Don Lemon. James Baldwin was a revolutionary uh, writer and author and 
thinker of his time uh, from the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Um, and you remember, he, you know, he would do talks with William Buckley, and you know, he was just a great thinker um, and um, a great um, uh, thought leader of his time. And he wrote a lot about race relations in this country. He happened to be gay, a gay black man from Harlem. I'm a gay black man from the South. So when I picked up his book as a freshman in college, it really changed my life. And the book is called The Fire Next Time. It's a short book. He starts off the book with a letter to his nephew on the 100 year anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. And so as I was sitting around, Anthony, as you know, uh, at the matrix of really what had what has been happening in the country over the last couple of years, but especially the the unrest that took place last summer uh, with the death of culminating in the death of George Floyd and then the protests that happened. Um, and in that moment, I decided it was time for me to write a book about race. And I wanted to to be as impactful as The Fire Next Time, which is my favorite book, and as powerful as that book and as revolutionary as that book. Um, not that I'm James Baldwin, I'm not trying to be him. There's only one him, only one person could put words on paper like he did. Uh, and so this is the answer to that. He, in his book, he said, uh, when, when he talked about race, he said, God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water, the fire next time, speaking specifically about the race issue in this country. And so my book, after all those events happened this summer, I said, well, this is the fire that James Baldwin talked about. We're in the fire now. And thus came my book. And I begin it like James Baldwin with a letter to my great nephew. You know, it, 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 it's fascinating because I read, obviously, the works of James Baldwin as a kid. I got invited to uh, this conference on race awareness when I was in high school. And uh, Eddie Gloud. Professor Eddie Gloud, who you know, obviously wrote a book last summer, Begin Again, about James Baldwin. And so I find it fascinating that he's back with us. But something that struck me about your book that I'd like you to address is that you talk about your trials and tribulations with racism growing up where you did. I want you to tell the, our, our listeners and viewers where you grew up and some of those tribulations. But I want to ask you a question and ask you to think about it for a second. Growing up, and being where you are today, the arc of your career has been tremendous. But did you think, and I'll, I'll answer for myself, I thought the racism was going to decline as we were growing up. You know, the introduction of James Baldwin, Martin Luther King Jr., the idea that we're all the same and we should judge ourselves by the content of our character, but that did not happen. And so my question to you is, did you think that growing up? Were you... Yeah aspirational yeah. idealistic like that or, or yeah look I think we're both kind of 80s uh, you know I grew up was born in the 60s um the 70s sh shaped me but the 80s really had a had a profound impact on me because you know the 80s were kind of everybody was free you you're not catching the smirking from Darcy who was born last week okay just oh, want to yeah. point oh, that out to you okay you're not I'm, I'm ignoring him because yeah 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 try to ignore him you're a fellow <laughs> baby boomer like me we have to team up on him otherwise no. we have no shot here Nope, nope, I'm Gen X. Right, you're, you're, you're a baby boomer. Okay, all right, that's true. That's true. I'm the last year of the baby boomers. There's not ahead, enough Botox that can make you look as young as Don, but keep going. <laughs> but let me tell you something. My forehead works. There, there are much more Botox experiments ahead in my future, Darcy. So it may not look that way now, but it's coming. Okay, so just take it easy over there. Wait, let you me, got the Botox? Sir, 
Botox, dude, I can barely move my face at this point. You don't notice it. You don't notice it on TV. Move your forehead. Let me see, Anthony. I can barely have a glass. Oh my gosh! Come on, come on. D Lemon, I can barely have a glass of water at this point in my life. Okay, I'm using I'm using double straws now on my Starbucks in the morning. All right, now now Darcy's enjoying that because I'm getting roasted. Let's go back to your thoughts about your idealism and where we are. So I was a child of the 60s, really, you know, I don't remember much of the 60s. I was born in 66, right? But I remember the the 70s and 80s. And the 80s, that's when I was coming, you know, into my own. I was becoming an, a, a young man and an adult. And I, you know, went to a high school. At first, I went to an all-Black Catholic school and then ended up going to a high school that was predominantly white. Um, and so I started having interactions with all types of people. And people began being open about, you know, intermingling and and getting together. This was you know, a decade after schools had become integrated in the South. It, I went to my high school a decade after it had become integrated. Um, and so I felt the same way. I, I kept thinking as I was growing up, well, this is going to change. It's going to die off when the old people die off. You know, it's going to go away. Uh, and then uh, the events, especially that happened over the last five years or so, just started to uncover um, all of the toxicity and ugliness when it comes to racism the sort of underbelly of our society, if you will. Um, I think that the Trump administration exposed that uh, and it was a a rude awakening for a lot of people. It wasn't surprising that it was there, but to the the boldness to the degree that it was for me was actually fairly shocking. And so I don't know if you remember in the book where I said that Trump was, I I hated to say it, but he was the president we, we deserved and probably the one we needed in the moment. No, I mean, I'm, I'm going to get there. I think that's okay, a fascinating well, so, part of the book. I, uh, yes, go- I, I was optimistic that racism would diminish as I got older. Yeah, I, Sadly, I thought for so the last too. five years, it has not done that. No, not I'm only that. Right. It was probably cloaked a little bit of anything. President Trump, as you point out in the book, exposed it. May, maybe that will help us get to a better point. I want to go to your mom first, and then we'll get to Donald Trump. But uh, And I have not met she your mom. You. I, I have to. Lie. It's weird. What's that? She loves you. I don't know why it's weird. Probably because you turned on the orange menace and she does not like him. And, and she probably is happy. I predicted a lot of the stuff that was going to happen that she was she drew comfort from that. Right. Can I tell you, um, just as yeah. when you later when we talk about, you know, what he exposed as far as race, he also, um, quite frankly, made people a lot more politically engaged because my mom was never that political. And now she listens to everything. She despised him. And if she didn't despise him before he started attacking me, certainly afterwards, she couldn't Yeah, well, I mean, look, I mean, listen, you're, I have not met your mom yet, although uh, Deirdre, my wife Deirdre and I had a chance to see her on your New Year's Eve special with Brooke Baldwin. <laughs> and uh, no surprise to viewers, she stole the show. She did. Uh, you, you know, she has more charisma in her little finger than all of us do, okay? It just beautiful manifestation of our authenticity. But you write something in the book about traveling to Africa with her. Yeah. And the emotions that you both felt in Africa and your connection to your mom. So can you share that with us? I don't want to give the book away, but there's some beautiful passages here that I want to talk about so that I can get convince people to buy this book and spend the time to read it. Well, so long story short, we did a, a segment on CNN, all of the anchors, on uh, tracing our roots. And so I had to go back to Louisiana and then of course, you know, back to the continent of Africa to do it. And we went to the slave coast, uh, the, the Cape Coast castle 
on the slave coast slash Gold Coast because they they can overlap in Africa and um, to trace the the journey back to America. And so we ended up at this castle with the dungeons where the, the slaves with with shackles, and it was just really this just heavy experience. Um, and once we got out to, I, you know, I won't tell you what happened in the dungeon. You can only imagine people in the dungeon and shackles for months sometimes. We get to the place called the, um, the Door of No Return, where you go out and you board the slave ship. And it was the last, really, the last land that anybody saw in Africa as they left to make that journey across the Atlantic. And walking through that door with my mother and us holding hands was probably one of the most emotional experience I ever had in my life. I, I mean, it, 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 it moved me to tears, uh, Don. I have to tell you, that's why I wanted to address it. I, I folded the pages over. Your mother says, I have to confess something, said mom. I'm glad we came, but I'm glad I don't live here. Yeah. Tell, tell us what she means. Well, this was after that experience. And because after that experience, you go to, they change the name. And when you turn around, which really made us cry and gave us optimism, is the door of return. And so after we shot that, the door of no return, the door of return, and we saw all the kids playing in the sea, which I write about and carefree in the book, we go back to the hotel that night and we're just going over the day and we, we are sitting by the sea. We have a bottle of wine. My mom opens up to me and talks to me about how, how much she loved me, loves me, how proud she was of me or is of me. And um, she said, you showed me things. I'm, I'm the adult. I'm supposed to be showing you things and teaching you things, but you have showed me things that I have never thought that I would see or learn or do in my life. And I'm just so proud of you. And I just, I love you so much. Um, and then she said, but I have to be honest with you. I'm glad we don't live here because I don't, um, I don't know if I could accept or understand this degree of poverty and um, she said, if I lived here, I probably wouldn't know. Um, but she also said, we also wondered about those kids in the sea, if they had a freedom um, and um, a lack of self-awareness, not self-awareness, but a self-consciousness um, that we didn't have as adults because we knew America and that we had learned too much about what people can do and the degradation that people can face because those children were so carefree. So there was um, there were positives and negatives. She was glad she didn't live there, but she wondered just how free she would be in her mind, how carefree had we stayed there. But you, you, you say something fascinating. The writing's excellent, by the way. You say that this journey, uh, it's your own unique journey, but it's American. It's an American journey. American. Okay, tell us, tell us what you mean. Well, we went back as Americans, expecting to have all of the luxuries that Americans have. You know, we get off the airplane if they're flying first class and we expect to get there and, and be in the Four Seasons. And that's not going to happen or even to be in the Holiday Inn. And that's just not what, what happened. Uh, I had been to Africa many times, but my mom had never been there. So she didn't understand the poverty that she would see. She didn't understand... Um, just how uh, the, the, the lack of modern conveniences in many places that she would experience. And for her, it was real eye-opening because she had never seen anything like that in America ever. And so we had a uniquely American experience where we expected everyone to cater to us and every, you know, everything to be ready for us and handed to us on a silver platter. We don't realize how, how, you know, how good we have it here many times. 
Yeah, so it's an interesting dichotomy because there's uh, there's a racially charged society, uh, yet there's a lot of great things that are happening in America, a lot of aspirational things. And I and I got from you when you used the word American. Uh, to me, what got me goosebumps was you're here to inject hope, you're here to provide hope, and you're here to move things forward. And so as an American who loves the country, you're about progress. Is that is that what I'm getting? Am I getting the well, right? Well, that, was, well, that wasn't from the C thing. The C thing was just sort of us going over. That was more about a personal experience and journey for us, about how we felt personally. The door of return was that part of it. Was That yeah. was the optimism part that right. we were carrying forward, that, that our ancestors... Um, had 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 this horrible journey and experience in America, and then we came back to the the homeland, and that we were going to carry this experience back with us to inspire other people and to teach other people that they were survivors. And that there yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm probably con- I'm probably conjoining yeah. them a little bit, but the, my, my, I guess my hang point on, is on, one second, one second, one second. But there was a history just beyond being a slave in America. That, yes, that's, that's all I wanted to say. Yeah, well, look, it's it's brilliant writing. I want to shift gears a little bit to something contemporary, get your reaction. The George Floyd murder was a tipping point for a lot of uh, black people, uh, tipping point for white people, frankly. I think that the graphic depiction of that on television, the eight minutes, 40 plus seconds of that, uh, we literally are watching a murder before our eyes. Why was that incident uniquely catalyzing for the fight against racism? Because You and I have both known of those types of stories. Uh, And we had the, you know, situation with Rodney King when we were younger. But this seemed to be a real tipping point. Why do you think that was? I mean, had you ever seen anything like that? We Listen, again, we grew up, we're pretty close to the same age. You hear about it, right? People Mm -hmm. tell you about their experiences. And if you don't have to experience it, if it's never happened to you, then it doesn't exist. And then all of a sudden, we're sitting at home in quarantine, not knowing many people where their next dollar was going to come from, if their loved one was going to survive COVID, if they were going to catch COVID, what the next day or the next week or the next year was going to look like. So we were all open and vulnerable. And then on our television sets or on our uh, com- these little computers that we all carry around in our pockets, these cell phones, we saw a man die before our eyes and someone sit there and just put their knee on his neck and rob them of the God-given right to be able to breathe. And there was no denying what we saw, and there was no denying the experience of African-Americans, especially African-American men, at the, at the hands of some police officers. That's why it resonated so much. We were open and vulnerable, and we couldn't take our eyes off of them. Well, and I think you, you did an amazing job during that very tragic event explaining it to the American people. Um, you're the rare black primetime host. And, you know, look, I'm just looking at it objectively, Don. It's a very white industry. So how do you use your voice to cut through the noise and communicate to people about the systemic racism that we see? Um, I Honestly, Anthony, that's a, that's a great question. And you know it's tough, right? Because I, I'm not only representing myself, I'm representing a company. Yes. And, and a company that can get sued or get, you know. Yeah, you're on a balance beam. You are you are the, you see, Darcy won't know this reference, but you're the Nadia Comaneci of broadcasters. Okay, you're on Nadia that. Nadia Comaneci is? Come on. Yeah, he's, he's, Google, he's Googling her right now, Lemon. He has no clue. But, you know, you're on that balance beam every night 
and you're trying to strike the right chords of realism and authenticity, yeah. but you're also trying to wake up a right. group of people in our society that, you know, maybe they just haven't experienced it as graphically as you have, or, you know, people living in inner cities, et cetera. So how do you do it? Well, I, I'm there for a reason. I'm there, one, because uh, I think I do the job pretty well. I think, I, you know, I'm a pretty, I do a pretty good job of anchoring a television to, uh, show. But also, uh, I'm there because of my experience. That's what diversity is about. Well, right, look, look, you're, you're, you're being modest. Okay, you, do, you do a great job. And let me tell you why I think you do a great job. And this is just my observation of you. Even when you were blasting me, and okay, when I was the White House communications director, and unfortunately, I was trapped inside the Trump Hotel watching you, and you were just blasting me. I was looking at this guy. I said, you know, this guy has a point. Okay, I have to figure out how we're going to change the narrative here. I can remember taking my pen out, watching you blast me, and I was writing down how we were going to, I have to try to figure this out, because a lot of the stuff that you were saying was true. You do it in a diplomatic way, okay? But but so you're very good at what you do. So just cut right through it. Tell okay. us, tell us, tell us in your mind editorially what you're working on before you get off before the light, the red light goes on. Well, I I listen. One, I have to do my research, and I have to know what I'm talking about. But two, now I've gotten to a place where I can speak with authority. And to be quite honest, you and your former boss uh, gave me um, uh, a sense of authority and urgency that I didn't have before because I had to speak truth to power. Um, I always had to do that. But in this instance, in his instance, I had to make my voice louder and clearer. And so when I, when I go on the air, I have a responsibility to tell the truth, not only to the people who look like me, especially to the people who look like me, but also to all of America, because all of America needs to hear that. And if I don't do it as the only black person in prime time, Joy Reid is early prime, we're the only two people who share that space. If, and I did it for seven years by myself. Who is going to do it, Anthony Scaramucci? So I had to lean in and then, you know, take the slings and arrows and then worry about being fired or going too far. That That is... That was second nature. So um, well, I, if I don't I, do it, who will? That's how I feel. That's, that's where I am. And that's- well, I, I, that's I admire, I want, I want to go back to an interview. I was in Atlanta, Georgia. You were interviewing Donald J. Trump, then candidate for president. <laughs> he was describing the situation with Megyn Kelly. I'm not going to go into what he said. It's not worth oh it. Uh, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And I, I, I you know, and this is a poor reflection on me, by the way, so I'm just going to be very open about it. When I was watching him, I was like, okay, he can't be serious. This has got to be part of a, you know, an act. He can't be serious. But you saw it seriously. And I, I guess I didn't. And a lot of people, frankly, didn't. That's my bad. I have to own that for the rest of my life. But was that an inflection point for you? Or did you know the nature of things prior to that interview? Um, that was an inflection point to me, but I, the, you know, you do the math and you, you, you do the calculus in your head, like, oh my gosh, what should I, how should I handle this? What should I do? And I didn't want to jump in on what he said in that moment and change it into something that it wasn't. And I didn't want to be a part of that moment in the sense that I wanted his words to speak for themselves and let people digest it the way that they, they should. And then I go back and I said, should I have called him out, should I have whatever? And then every, people say, you know, I, I got what you were doing. 
So no, I um, thought, listen, it, Don, that's a couple, that's got to be four and a half years ago. I remember it vividly, maybe five years ago. Five years ago. Five years ago. So I remember it vividly and it left a big impact on me. You write in the book, more or less, I'm paraphrasing now, that Donald Trump didn't invent racism, but he made it more uh, open. He was more almost like unashamed to openly express it live, according to his prejudices. Mm -hmm. Uh, You write that uh, he was like a symptom that alerted you, Don Lemon, and others, for that matter, to an underlying disease. Tell us what you mean by that. Well, that's what he was the perseverating. I think if you go down a couple more sentences, I think he said, I think I said the perseverating ulcer or tumor or something that drove us into the oncologist's office and so that we could diagnose the problem and then take care of it. So that's um, that's how I thought about it. He he exposed we we know who the racists are. We know that the racists are, there are more racists in our society and, and than we realize. We know that there's a resurgence of neo-Nazis and all of that, which would I think would have been hidden um, if it had not been for Donald Trump because those people felt that he was giving them legitimacy. How do you say it? He, he had become their imprimatur, yes. right? He gave them their, a stamp of approval. And so- um, He was saying the quiet things out in the uh, open and they were like, okay, now, now we can say this. We can thing. say this thing. We don't have to wear hoods. We can wear khakis and polo shirts and right. march down city streets in the middle of the day or you know, in early evening with tiki torches. And we can do it with pride. And yeah. so that's what he did. And now we know. I'm, I'm, I don't know about you, but I want to know. I would rather know what someone is, where they're coming from, rather than you hiding your hand. Yeah. I mean, some of it's so ugly, Don, that sometimes I say, Jesus, I don't want to know that much. But I get I get the point that you're making. I'm from the South. I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Yep. The Klan used to hand out literature, Anthony, in front of my high school on the weekends. We did not have school-sponsored um, except for sporting events. There was no prom. There were no parties. There was nothing like that because they didn't want the races mixing. There was a big Baptist church across the street where the Klan would hand out literature. My best friend lived next door to the Grand Wizard of the KKK, not next door like in a house, but on the giant, giant pieces of property, you know, land, acres. And and he was the, the property next door. So I know racism, but I know that when I was growing up, people hid it or they secluded themselves. They lived in places and they dared black people to live there. They didn't want black people to live near them. And then when that started to encroach, they kept moving further out. You had the white flight. So people kept hiding and moving and hiding. And, and, and now you can't, right? You cannot do it. And so now I believe that we are in the death throes of white supremacy in this country simply because of demographics. And the proof of it is the reaction to, that people have had to this election and to Donald Trump. And the biggest evidence I have is the insurrection that happened on January 6th. Amen. So we're, let's go to that for a second. And then I'm going to turn it over to the young millennial. He's not even Generation Z or whatever the hell you just called yourself. This guy is like fresh yeah, from the womb. Gen Z, I think, is younger than millennials, right? Oh, yeah, I'm not Gen Z. You are, I'm whatever firmly you are, I mean, he's millennial. Not, he's like 100 years younger than you. But let's just go to, let's go to this question about the insurrection. Uh, it's tied into the racism. It's tied into the dishonor of our democracy because ultimately you had a group of people uh, that are feeling the heat. The demography is changing and uh, they didn't like it. They didn't like the outcome. So 
Give us your reaction to the insurrection. So my reaction was I was sitting there watching saying, oh, my God, this is, as I write about in the book, if we don't deal with, I write about Christian Cooper and Amy Cooper, remember in the park with yeah. the dog and she called mm -hmm. the cops on the guy it's because saying, you know, he's a black man and he, that he's bothering me in the park. And I write in the book about, unless you deal with this in a substantial uh, way, then someone's going to come back with a bigger dog. Well, right. the bigger dog was the lie about the election that it was stolen. And then the bigger dog after that was the insurrection. And then who knows what the next bigger dog will be. And oh. so, so, and what is that going to be a, a takeover of the government, uh, a martial law, whatever? I don't know. You know, racists marching down every major street in the country. I have no idea. But uh, from the beginning, I knew. I knew what it was when I saw it. I knew when I saw his speech that it was go going to turn violent. Yeah. And I, I was sitting there watching it saying, oh, my God, I cannot believe this. And, you know, the first thing I saw was, I, first thing I thought was, I remember this last summer when there were Black Lives Matter protesters in front of the White House. Uh, and they were gassed by the, the, the president or whoever, um, William Barr, the Justice Department, ordered them to be gassed so the president could, ma could make a photo op in, in front of a church with a Bible. And then there were also Black Lives Matter protesters who had gone to the Capitol that summer, marched, did not try to go in, did not try to overthrow uh, the government or overturn an election. Um, and then you had these guys do it. And I knew that they didn't get shot. They were able to go into the Capitol because they weren't black. If they would have been black or Muslims or Latinos, they would have either been shot. There's no way they would have let them in the Capitol. And these people, a lot of them just marched right into the Capitol. And Senator Ron Johnson would have been over. very fearful of them. But of course, he was not fearful of the white people that were trying to kill Mitt Romney and Nancy Pelosi. So, and then he stands there with the highest level of ignorance uh, saying, what are you talking about? Why are you throwing the racist card at me? And so, I mean, we <laughs> what have a do you lot. think of that? What do you think of that? I, I was about as appalled as you could be at that. I was embarrassed for him and his family. Uh, the fact that that's on tape forever is a stain on his family in terms of his lack of awareness and his lack of, uh, judgment about what's going on in our society. Uh, before I turn it over to John, one last question. <laughs> John, you're never going to get to ask a no, question. No, because this uh -oh, time's up. Time's up. <laughs> Sorry, John. I'm cutting. I'm cutting into your time. Too bad. Okay. What do we do? What do we say to our kids? Give me something to lean on aspirationally. What do I say to my kids? Because your skin color is a little bit darker than mine, and your hair is a little bit tighter and curlier Not than mine. Winter. Not much in the winter. No, that's true. I mean, look at okay, well, well, I'm, yeah, from, I'm from, you know, my family's Anthony middle. hasn't been that's able to it. get his spray tan that's during it. COVID, so he's suffering. I have no, I've got no spray tan, but I got a lot of Botox. Everybody take it easy. I'm still asking the questions, okay? So, so tell me something aspirational. You've got a little bit more of a kink in your hair. Your skin is a little darker than mine, uh, but I see you the way I see myself. How do I... How do I, how do, right how do we make that happen for our country? How do we relax people that we are the same? What is the well, big deal? That's well, my. Okay. So when you said you see me and you see me as yourself, that means that you see my humanity, right? I and do. Yes. Yes. So we all need to start seeing each other's humanity, respecting each other's humanity and loving each other. And then that it becomes that much harder to denigrate someone. It becomes that much harder to put your knee on the neck of someone. It becomes that much harder 
um, to treat someone differently or to discriminate against them if you see their humanity, which means you have to be in some, some, some sort of a relationship with them, uh, a friendship, uh, at least an acquaintance, and maybe even romantically to people who are of different ethnicities. Mm -hmm. So I think that is the thing that you should teach your kids. You should teach your kids to get friends and to um, be around people who are not just like them. Exactly. And because then you, you'll, you'll find that we're really not that different. Go ahead, Mr. Dorf. One more, one more thing you have to teach them. You've got in school, I think they need to teach kids the true history of this country and the, um, the contributions of African-Americans, which are often left out of history books and kids don't know it. And by the time those kids become adults, they wouldn't try to overturn an election by, by um, storming the Capitol because they are basing their history and their knowledge on lies about the country. Well, 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 very well said. I always recommend Jill Lepore's book, These Truths. Uh, it is quite a study, quite a graphic examination of the good in the United States, but also the perils and some of the bad. Go ahead, Mr. Darcy. All right, that's all the time I have, guys. Thank you. See you later. Anthony, it's in my contract. I get at least one third of the show. This is a bunch of crap. <laughs> But uh, yeah, thank you for uh, for you allowing have me the same agent as I had. That's why I don't have a television gig. Okay, we need to get Lemon's agent. But go ahead, keep going. Don, I grew up in North Carolina. We were talking before the show. You detected still a lingering uh, Southern accent. You grew up in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. You know, there's different types of racism that exists in our society. There's Deep South, you know, handing out KKK flyers racism, and there's a NIMBYism. You know, I think. I live in New York now on Long Island. There's a natural segregation that takes place, a voluntary segregation, if you will, where there's not maybe as much mixing of races here in New York, a blue state, a supposedly progressive area, as there was when I was growing up going to public high school in North Carolina. What are the different types of more sort of pervasive, quiet forms of racism that you think we need to chip away at in terms of, you know, nimbyism, not in my backyard type of racism? And, and how do you experience that in day-to-day -day life not in a way that's in your face, people wearing hoods, but in a way that's just a little bit quieter and more pervasive. Well, I'm glad you talked about that because I haven't heard nimbyism in such a long time that not in my backyard ism, right? Uh, I think that you you pointed out the main one is that is that we live in a place that is probably the most diverse place in the country in the metropolitan New York area and even um, in the suburbs and people don't mix, people don't, talk to each other or hang out. And they the only time that they have any interaction is if they're forced to either uh, in business or in schools. And then even there, they don't, you know, hang out with each other. That is one of the, the main solutions that I talk about uh, personally. And that I want people to get out of this book is that you're the only way, the only real way you're going to do it is through relationships. And I know people say, oh, it's tough because people self um, segregate or, or we live in a polarized society. I say, John, it's not hard to meet other people. Look how I met Anthony. Anthony came into the green room or came onto the show. And what did I say to him? Or what did he say to me? Hey, would you like to go have a drink? You want to hang out afterwards? I'm having a party. You're invited. Come to my holiday party or come to come grill at my house. We're having a barbecue on Saturday or Sunday. That is not that hard to do. I don't care what anybody says. You can do that at any age and to get to learn about someone because when you don't know people, you don't know them. And the only way you get to know them is if you get to know them, right? I mean, it's just as simple as that. It's, it's, it's simplicity. And so I think that that's the key. 
that is really, for me, that quiet, um, I don't want to call it flat out racism, but it's, um, it is a racial blind spot, right? It is uh, a step towards, as Anthony and I talk about all the time, a more perfect union. Right. Because no, again, nothing is going to get accomplished unless we all get to know each other as human beings. That's the first and major thing for me. Yeah. It almost just, it feels like it's more convenient for people to just, you know, live in their bubble. And I think one of the things that the George Floyd incident did was say, we really need to confront this and actively educate ourselves and the people around us. If we're really going to make a difference, it's not enough to, you know, be a, an idle bystander and watch this stuff happen. We have to be active participants if we're going to teach people to love, you know, Nelson Mandela, as Anthony was alluding to earlier, people aren't born racist. You know, it's they have to be taught to hate. And if they can be taught to hate, they can be taught to love, which I think. Let me, was, let me tell you, let me tell you this. John. Yeah. I think people say that because um, they want to make an excuse for the way that they've always lived, that they've been living for a long time. And if until you get out of yourself and you um, you you sort of breach that bubble or whatever it is of your comfort zone then again, it's not going to change. Look, I had a, a gay pride party the June of 2019. Anthony Scaramucci was on the invite list. He couldn't, I don't, Anthony, you didn't come, I don't remember. I don't think Anthony. No, I came to that. No, I mean, you came to my pride party. Yeah, I came to the pride party, sure. Okay. So I've been working on, I've been working on marriage equality with, with New York State since 2008. Of course I came to that. Okay, so this, that's the thing. I did not, not invite you to the pride party because you're a heterosexual man. I just said, hey, we would love to have Anthony at the party. We had, um, you know, an open house for Christmas. We didn't say, well, we're going to invite this many white people, this many black people, this many straight people, this many Christians, this whatever. We invited everyone. I had a party. Remember, I had the party in before the election. Um, or no, at, during, uh, after the election. I had like a, a winter party. Yep. And we invited everyone. People were like. Also, hey, the, your engagement party at the townhouse that you were thinking about. You yeah, know, everybody was there. there. That was amazing. Every Everybody was there. I met another person that used to pick on me. Okay, True. Joy. Behar. Yeah. No, not Joy Behar. Uh, Joy Reed? Yeah, Joy Reed. I met her in the living room at your party. I said, okay, let me go back. Let me go back to my Twitter feed, Joy. And we got on. We had a great laugh. And now I do a show. I mean, come on. I mean, that's how you break things down, man. That's what that's. Anyway, I'm sorry, John. Go ahead. Yeah, Anthony has a unique ability to make people that want to hate him not hate him when they spend enough time with him in a private setting. He also hands uh, out money, too. So that helps. Yes, exactly. And I'm like a fungus. I get stuck in your toenail and I never go away. OK, Lemon doesn't realize this, but he'll be talking to me when he's like 95. Oh, God. Of course, I'll be of course, I'll be 97 at that time. Keep going, Darcy. We, we try to keep the payoffs secret, Don. So thank, thank you for outing us there. But I want to talk about uh, police brutality. So we talked about yeah. the George Floyd incident, but I think police brutality and policing is a very loaded topic these days. After the election, President Obama talked about how the use of the words defund the police was not constructive in terms of trying to defeat Donald Trump. You know, it, but also on the other side, on the right, you have just this hypocrisy around, you know, backing the blue and supporting police officers. During the insurrection, you had uh, insurrectionists beating police officers with signs that said blue lives matter, which was almost the height of parody in a tragic way. But you know, black people's experience, this is one of the, the conversations that really resonates with me, just listening to black people talk about their experience around law enforcement. 
I've been pulled over before. I've had interactions with police officers and I've never once felt threatened or unsafe because I've genuinely always felt they're trying to protect me. Whereas I think black people feel like police officers, not all police officers, of course, are sometimes trying to target them. But at the same time, I think the vast majority of police officers are there to serve and protect as, as, uh, as the slogan goes. How do we reform policing and how do we avoid painting police officers with such a broad brush that alienates them? It just It's such a complex topic. How do we tackle it? How do we improve policing uh, in a way that's constructive without demonizing the whole profession? Well, I say you have to pick up this book yeah. <laughs> because there's a chapter in there on policing where I talk about what they've done in Newark, uh, Ross Baraka. I think I talk about what they've done in Philadelphia. And, and I, there's a mention of San Francisco police chief, um, as well on how they sort of revolutionize their police departments or are in the process of doing so. Listen, I'm not a policing expert, but I think what you, the way you start is, is that you have to treat people with dignity as, as I have been saying. And then also I think community policing is very important that police officers are from, or at least familiar with the community that they serve and that they're not seen as occupiers in the community, that they're seen as part of the community and they're there to be peace officers and not necessarily be occupiers. Um, you know, I have interactions with police officers mostly for traffic tickets as an adult. Um, and I'm concerned as a person of means when I see a police officer um, pull me over or in some way is looking to question me because I had experiences with police officers. I was pro racially profiled. And I called the cops, the cops showed up and they thought the person that I called the cops on actually called the cops and they were like, you go sit over there. I, this gentleman called police. And then I said, no, excuse me, I called police. And you see right. that thing in their head, like uh, like their world changes and like in a second, oh my gosh, wow. Like, wait, okay, so the black guy called the police on the white guy, wow, that's, that's interesting. So um, I just think that police officers need to, um, need to know the people that they are there to protect. Remember, and remember that they're there to protect people, not necessarily um, to throw people on the ground and, and treat them horribly. But listen, I also know that policing is very tough. I would not want to be a police officer. That's why I'm a journalist and not a police officer. I don't want that job. But in that job, you're supposed to know how to deescalate situations. And, um, and I hope the right kind of person is drawn to policing in the future rather than someone who just wants to crack heads. Well, Don, it's been a pleasure to have you on. I'm a huge fan of your show. Don, as that's well. all the time you get? I, that's all the time I get. We're running out of time. What do you do? I have to say, I, yeah, I, yeah, the yeah, only I reason I question your bit, judgment yeah. is, is yeah. maybe your, your booking department needs to revisit uh, some of their decision-making on their guests because you have Anthony frequently on your show and your ratings must plummet. Get the hell uh, out of here. We have very period, good. Get the hell out of here. We have very good chemistry on that show. Okay. According go, to who, Anthony? Call your mom. <laughs> to your mom. What do you mean, according to who? Tim, your mom, Deirdre. I'm just, I'm telling them. The, Tim the, is listening the, somewhere here. Yeah, the know. more important, pe the more important people uh, above and beyond this particular salt talk. Tim thinks you're very smart. I don't know why he does. He just, he always says that you're really smart. And well, he also actually thinks Kelly and Conway is really smart. Well, listen, I mean, I, I, I would agree with him on he Kelly. He thinks he's and, smart I mean, too, Don. You know, he's going to agree with you here. You know, listen, I, I, uh, I, had, I hadn't talked to Kelly. You'll, you'll enjoy this part. I, I, uh, I ran into Kellyanne on a London-based show in the evening on a Zoom. I hadn't seen her in four years. And she, was, 
she was quite polite to me. But having said that, uh, I think she also respected the fact that uh, I didn't let her uh, former boss walk on me. Uh, I think, you know, so it was one of those interesting s- situations. But I want to hold the book up one more time before you go. Uh, it's uh, This is the Fire. Uh, Don, I got to tell you, it was a moving book. I don't say that because you're a friend. Uh, it was a moving book. And I want to encourage people to read it. And I think you made it digestible so you can get through it in an evening. Uh, and it's very well thought out. And I think it will help people get to where we need to get to. And I want to get it in the hands of as many people as possible. So thank you for writing it. And thank you for joining us on, on Salt Talks. How many books did you buy? You bought it for your entire company, right? And all your friends? I did, actually. We, we, did, we bought it, from, uh, we bought the it from the Strand. We bought it from the Strand. Trying to help out the Strand because it's still an independent bookseller. Are you serious? You went to the Strand and bought some books? Yeah, we we have a deal with Anthony. No, we we have a deal with the Strand. We buy we we like buying books. You know, good stuff, especially good ones. John, it's a pleasure to meet you, Anthony. Whatever. (laughs) It's a pleasure to be with you, and uh, you know, this is the fire. I think it was a great title, as Anthony said. I'm hopeful that we can, you know, not take two steps forward and one step back. I feel like there's such an energy around this anti-racist movement today that I'm hoping that that uh, the fervor can continue and we can really make tangible progress over the next five to 10 years. Thank you, sir. By the way, you make more money not being a racist. I'm just telling you, more diversity. (laughs) It's true. You know, more diversity on your team, better ideas, better energy. I don't get it. We got to, we got to push people, get the incentives right. You know, thanks. Um, John, John, what's your, you got a nickname like Mooch? Just Darcy. Nobody calls me by my first name. It's all Darcy or Darcy. Yeah. Darcy. Darcy. All right. Got it. All right, Mooch and Dars, thank you. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to today's Salt Talk uh, with Don Lemon of CNN out with a great new book, This is the Fire, talking about race relations in America. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous Salt Talks, you can access them all on our website at salt.org backslash talks and on our YouTube channel called Salt Tube. Follow us on Twitter. We're at Salt Conference is our handle. That's where we're most active on social media. But we're also on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn as well, trying to do more on all those channels. So we would love a follow there. And spread the word about these Salt Talks. We've made them free and accessible for everyone. We love growing our community uh, and educating people on a wide variety of topics, none more important uh, than how to end racism. So please spread the word about this talk and others that we host. And on behalf of uh, the entire SALT team, Joe Aletto behind the scenes, our superstar producer, Anthony, uh, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here soon.